the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast with me, Laura Slattery. Later, I'll be talking to investment journalist Prunchia Somahani about the Bitcoin bubble. I'll also be checking in with business reporter Barry O'Halloran, who'll give us the latest on a pilot strike at Ryanair. First, we must return to Brexit. Last week's Brexit shambles was followed by a Brexit breakthrough of sorts, which was then followed by a Brexit botch from the UK's lead negotiator. To discuss the many contradictions that remain and the lingering sense of chaos, Irish Times columnist Chris Johns and managing editor Cliff Taylor are here. Coming to you first, Cliff... The UK's Brexit Secretary David Davis really seems to have irritated Brussels by saying last week's agreement was a statement of intent rather than legally enforceable. Why is this proven to be such a desperate gaffe on his part? Yeah, I mean, he's he's trying to balance the uh, UK polit- local political o- audience on one side and the EU audience on the other. And I think he, he badly mal- miscalculated, not it must be said, for the first time. But I guess the uh, the rest of Europe is keen that this deal that was so hard fought, if you like, uh, is can now be written in stone, can be included in the EU withdrawal bail and, and thus take legal force, despite the fact that there are, you know, a lot, there's a lot to be worked out still in terms of how the text is actually made real, how it's how it's uh, how it's how it's brought into into play uh, in the long term, particularly in relation to the Irish border, where a lot of contradictions remain to be worked out. But I think something interesting has happened since since he made that statement. We've seen a, a really strong reaction from Europe, from the European Parliament, uh, from the European Commission saying, look, you signed a deal, this is the deal, a deal is a deal. And I think we've seen some very interesting pointers in the last uh, couple of days, e- even today, uh, about how difficult these talks are going to be for Britain. We've seen a string of warnings coming from the European Commission. Uh, first of all, today from uh, Michel Barnier, the lead negotiator, who said, look, basically, Britain can't mess with the single market in these negotiations that there are four freedoms, uh, goods, capital, services and people, uh, the four freedoms of movement under the single market and that Britain can't pick and choose. We've seen a group of MPs in London warning about the dangers of of leaving Euratom, the nuclear agency, and the chaos that this could cause if there isn't a proper transition. And we've seen uh, a new warning from Europe and Britain's airlines saying, look, if there isn't a transition agreement, you guys aren't going to be able to fly to Europe uh, after Brexit. And this is interesting because I think from the start, the airline sector has been vulnerable as one that the European Commission could target to really try and bring this home to the British public. You know, what's at play here? Because, you know, here's something that's that's very visible, that's very much part of everyday life. But yet, if these negotiations aren't concluded properly, you know, the planes won't be able to take off at the end of March 2019. So the clock is ticking, but yet the EU is sort of saying, well, we're not going to rush into trade talks until we, we have this kind of uh, this nailed down uh, that, you know, and, and to be fair to David Davis, he has since said that he sort of meant to say it was a statement of intent as well as <laughs> legally enforceable. But Chris, just how bad is he at negotiating? Um, well, the British generally have been pretty poor at this, um, com- in complete contrast to the EU side. The EU have been consistent all the way through. What The way Cliff just described their negotiating position as it stands at the moment, and indeed as it's evolved this week, has been entirely consistent from the start. It's been well worked out, 
well thought through, and they've stuck to the line that they have decided from the beginning, which stands in stark contrast to everything the British has done. Um, and that's largely because um, of the conflicting forces within the cons- ruling Conservative Party. We reckon there are about 35 or so hard Brexiteers within the uh, Conservative Parliamentary Party to which Theresa May is having to pander. And um, the, the vast majority of Conservative MPs, including in the Cabinet, are all Remainers. This is one of the fundamental paradoxes at the, at the heart of this. So they can't, e- they can't agree amongst themselves, so therefore they have not been able to agree this consistent negotiating line that was needed in order for these talks to make any progress. And so the impression of chaos is, is real. That's, that's what it's like. But the th- Cliff was talking about things developing this week. One of the interesting things that's happened, I think, since Theresa May managed to strike this late-night deal is that her power base within the Conservative Party has been increasing. She's making a comeback. Mm -hmm. And this is really, really interesting because the only way they do a good deal, the only way it becomes less chaotic is if they leave the single market and customs union as promised in name only. And they do this deal whereby they abide or talk, you know, they essentially stay in, but they call it something else. So a a soft Brexit. That's the way we, we get around the border problem. That's the way we get around a lot of problems. Anything else means chaos. But if they can do that, if she can pull that off, which means facing down the hard Brexiteers, and for the first time this week, we've got a hint. It's only that, but we've got a hint that that might be the game that she's playing. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because one of the things that surprised me over the last few weeks is the the, the retreat of the hard Brexiteers. And you're wondering, is is this a retreat to regroup or is this a retreat because they realise how dreadful this is actually going to be. So first of all, uh, Boris Johnson has said, you know, Europe can go whistle for its money. And then he signs up to paying 50 billion euro. Then they sign up to citizens' rights and, and the oversight of the European Court of Justice in some in some ways. They sign up to the Irish border deal, which could be very fundamental to the way that uh, Brexit eventually pans out. So you're left wondering, you know, wh- why this retreat? Uh, are they seeing warnings from British business about big job losses coming down the lines uh, early next year? Uh, but whatever the reason, as Chris said, there there does seem to be a changing political mood. I'm sure there's a fight back uh, before this is all done and a few more fight backs to come, oh, but it, it is interesting. Whether this is a tactical retreat to fight mm, another day or something strategic exactly. is really, really interesting. Um, if it's strategic, it must be because finally, at last somewhat belatedly, reality is dawning that just how awful this is going to be if they crash out without a good deal, if, if it's anything other than a soft Brexit. Soft Brexit isn't going to be pleasant for them, but the hard Brexit is definitely going to be awful for the British economy. And they must have been briefed by the civil service along these lines for months now. And um, there was a story that Boris Johnson, every single time one of his civil servants gave him a negative briefing about Brexit, would put his fingers in his ears and start singing the <laughs> national anthem. Um, I can believe that. That's how ridiculous this can be at times. But if he's listened, and he must, and they must be listening by now because this story will have been repeatedly put to them, this is going to be dreadful. I suspect that there may be something strategic about this and that if there is a game afoot, it is, is yes, to leave the European Union, less, yes, to leave the single market and customs union in name and do some kind of fudge deal where effectively they stay in it, sufficient to keep the border open at the very least. Um, and they still managed to get some kind of fig leaf over freedom of movement of people. Um, and so it's, it, it's, so the, the word fudge just comes to mind here, that, that, they are, that they've accepted some degree of reality at last, um, and we are heading perhaps to a softer Brexit than it looked likely only a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, the, the slightly maligned political scenario, sorry, Laura, is that 
Boris Johnson, Michael Gove realised that the only way that they're actually going to now leave the EU is if Theresa May stays there and sees this thing through. So they're willing to yeah, leave her I there mean, for that I mean, long I don't doubt and, that, and get that, out that, and work that many work of the, the hard then. Brexiteers are, are, are hard Brexiteers, but mm. some of them, you know, give the impression of simply they're just there to cause trouble for Theresa May and they'll literally say anything that will, will cause trouble for her uh, politically and that they can change <laughs> with the wind. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, Lying under this, of course, is the ambitions of, of of a couple of them, at least, to be the next prime minister and the calculation of how that can best be achieved. So you have to throw that into the mix as well. Is, and is that why but, we, but, we have this phenomenon that you mentioned there? Because it, it has been repeated throughout this year and last year of um, the, the senior Tories saying things uh, for the domestic audience, mm. um, <laughs> saying things to British newspapers on, and on uh, British television chat shows um, that's aimed at, Voters, but as if as if people in Brussels can't hear them. I mean, what, what's what's yeah. what's what's the, what's it, going on there? It is quite extraordinary, all right. And really, I suppose they've been they've been peddling a lie, and the lie is that you can leave the single market and customs union and still trade freely with uh, with with the rest of with the rest of Europe. You know that you can do trade deals with America and Australia and all these fantastic. Things that are going to bring wealth to the to to, to Britain, you know, and, st- and still remain part of Europe, and they're now going to have to face up to choosing one way or the other, really. And I think the one of the interesting things that came out over the last week is that Theresa May, or, or, or actually um, Philip Hammond, the, the Treasury Secretary, saying that the cabinet hadn't had the discussion yet so yeah. ha- about what kind of trade deal they want. So we have Michel Barnier and the European negotiator saying, okay, we're going to move on to phase two. We're going to move on to a trade deal. Can you please tell us what you want? Because you're the people who are leaving. And Britain is not yet able to come back and say, well, well, here's what we want. Uh, here's the kind of trade deal we want. And the reason they can't is because you're, you're into the fundamental contradiction. You're into facing up the fact that you can't, to use the awful phrase, uh, have your cake and eat it as you, as you leave it's, the it's, EU. It, it is about... Um uh, that facing up to reality, but it's also about paying attention to detail. They've all, they've all along these these people who don't pay that much attention to detail, particularly of things like trade negotiations and trade deals. Um, the cake and eat it thing that they've assumed eventually, with a bit of negotiation here and a bit of give and take there, would be that they would stay in. Uh, they they would have free trade in goods and services with the European Union. It's what they got now. We can have it, and we'll be free to negotiate our own trade deals with everybody else and uh, control our borders and not have freedom of movement of people. Not understanding in, in, in any kind of way just how important all of that is to the European Union, how fundamental freedom of movement of people um, is to the European Union. So it, it, I, I think they, that some glimmer of understanding has started to dawn that, that, that when Europe says, you're leaving the single market, you're leaving the customs union, all that's available to you is either a Norway-style association agreement or a Canada-type deal, and then they've looked at those two types of things and recoiled in horror and said, well, if we have that, you know, our economy is, is toast. I mean, speaking the, the, of the economy, I mean, how much of a factor is it that we are beginning to see signs of, of rising inflation um, in the UK? And the, I suppose the, the forecast is that next year will be pretty uh, sharp uh, increases in, in prices for consumers and that that will influence public support. Yeah, inflation has popped over 3% in the UK, which means it's, it's one of the highest rates in the world now. And that's almost entirely down to the fall in sterling. And provided sterling doesn't fall any further, that probably, it probably won't get much worse than, than this. But what it does mean is that real incomes are falling. 
And there's a core belief of the Conservative Party is that they won't win the next general election if real incomes are falling at the time that they call it. And that that's, that's one of the things, that, one aspect of reality starting to bite. Um, one of the things that Brexit has done is that it, it's, it's, it's uh, caused people like Cliff and myself to, to write things that we wouldn't normally write about. What we would normally have been writing about all through 2017 would have been the booming world economy and how it continuously surprises on the upside. And Brexit has taken attention away from that. And so one of the, the interesting things that happened, has happened this year is that every economy in the world has accelerated and the UK has slowed down. UK hasn't gone into recession, but it has slowed down. And it, if, if the world economy hadn't been booming, the UK economy could well have gone into recession. So relatively speaking, and in absolute terms, the UK economy is doing quite poorly. And would you forecast a general election in the UK next year? No, I wouldn't. Um, not, not unless something disastrous happens. I think the self-interest of the Conservative Party... Um, is such that they know that that's far too risky, that uh, Corbyn in number 10 Downing Street is a vista too awful to contemplate. Um, in, in order to have a general election, I think, you know, it, it would have, it, you know, it would have to have been a, a, a catastrophic sequence of events. Um, they could they could conceivably replace May without there being a general election. I think that would be tricky. I don't even think they're going to replace May now, whereas a few weeks ago, I thought there was a good chance she would go next year. Um, at the moment, that looks less likely. Yeah, I should say we're speaking before um, we know the outcome of a vote today in the House of Commons on its EU withdrawal bill. And I know there's some Tory uh, rebels piling up, but whether they, there's enough of them to cause a defeat or rather just a little bit of humiliation, I'm not sure. Um, Cliff, a general election in Ireland, would that make any difference? Um, well, I guess interesting that we avoided one in the immediate run up to the summit. Uh, next week I, th- I think you know it was obvious at the time uh, that that the, when when the nerves uh, the political nerves started jangling and it looked like we might be heading to an election that it would have been about the worst time to do it and I think we've seen why over the last week we needed a stable government uh, we needed a Taoiseach and a foreign minister with their eye 100% on the ball rather than wondering who is going to win the third seat in Cork, I thought it was, it was, uh, it was uh, interesting timing today that the, that the central the central bank uh, has sort of you know re- reminded everybody that Brexit continues to be a risk to the economy yeah, just, you know despite the feeling of maybe of uh, of, of of relief last week um, and feeling that Leo uh, Vracker and Simon Coveney have done a good job that the, that all of because we still don't know the outcome of this no, um, there's a, there's a huge uh, potential I guess for shocks to the Irish yeah. economy. Yeah, there's a very interesting political dynamic here heading into next year. So on the one hand, the economy is is flying at the moment. Uh, growth is five, probably be around 5% this year, maybe 4% plus next year. Uh, we're, we're not far off full employment. Looking towards next year's budget, there could be a serious amount of money to spend under EU rules, much more than there was this year, which could be an incentive for Fianna Fáil to try and trip an election somewhere around the summer of next year. But as you say, and rightly say yourself, there is then the the threat of Brexit uh, in March 2019. We will hopefully know, I suppose, in the middle of this year whether there's going to be some kind of transition period after Britain leaves the EU, whether perhaps the immediate threat of of, of a hard Brexit in March 2019 is removed. And, and that, I think that could play very in a very interesting way into the political dynamic here at heading into next summer. But there's no doubt that it's going to be an, a jumpy year, I think, in, in Irish politics. Uh, everyone watching everyone else and certainly the the, the chance of an election uh, I think before the next budget. Well you've mentioned some of the key known unknowns there so I'm quietly confident we'll be Brexit casting again in the near future and throughout 2018 
Um, but for now, thank you very much, Cliff Taylor and Chris Johns. We'll take a short break, but coming up, we'll be tackling Bitcoin and Ryanair. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. We're not still on about Brexit, but another word starting with B that has the potential to blow up spectacularly. Last week, Royal Bank of Scotland Chairman Howard Davis likened Bitcoin to Dante's Inferno and said an abandoned hope sign was needed to warn people off investing in it. Bitcoin has crossed the $15,000 mark, having surged more than 900% this year. And yet it's been branded a fraud and a mirage. What's driving this? Investment journalist Prunchius O'Mahony is on the line to explain. Prunchius, how crazy is the cryptocurrency craze? It's completely unprecedented, really, Laura. Um, You'd have made about 17 times your money this year. Bitcoin was about $1,000 at the start of the year. Um, Last, it's now gone past 17,000. So essentially, there have been comparisons made between Bitcoin's uh, trajectory and past market bubbles. And essentially, it's uh, pretty much unprecedented in history. the only bubble that appears to have been more extreme over the last 400 years was the the tulip bubble of the 1600s. Um, at the moment, Bitcoin it's um, enjoyed bigger gains than what was seen in the South Sea bubble of 1720, which is one of the most famous bubbles of all time. And then you've got the various kind of stock market bubbles of the 20th century, like in the 1920s and the Japanese stock market bubble of the 1980s, etc. And none of these really come come close to Bitcoin. Um, you know, like back in 2011, you could buy one Bitcoin for about five cents. Uh, and that's now gone past 17,000. So it's, you know, it really is getting um, crazier by the week. But the thing is, we've been we've been saying that for a long time. And and, and are these valuations meaningful? What's what's it mean to say that one Bitcoin is, is worth about $15,000? Uh, I don't think it means an awful lot to most people. I think, um, like, you can get people um, coming out with valuation analysis saying Bitcoin is worth X, Y, and Z. But essentially... I think the consensus is that most people are buying Bitcoin because the price is rising, and um, you know there's no great um, there's no great analysis behind uh, behind their thinking. It's simply well, it, the price is going up, and you can make an absolute fortune if you get in now and get out presumably before it crashes. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, some people don't ever seem to envisage a crash. I mean, you have some people saying Bitcoin will go to a hundred thousand dollars. Which is probably perfectly plausible at this stage, considering it's already at seventeen thousand. You've other people saying it's at a million, and then or that it'll go to a million, and then you've other people saying that essentially no price is too high. You know, now the problem with Bitcoin is that um, if you buy if you buy a stock, you, you know that that stock will generate dividends. If you buy a house, you can rent out your house, and you've got money from that. Whereas uh, there's no income from Bitcoin, and as a result. It, uh, it it can't really be valued. Um, I looked at one valuation analysis now by Professor Aswith uh, Damodaran. He's a kind of a high-profile professor in America. He's regarded as the dean of valuation on Wall Street. And uh, anyway, he did all these complicated equations, but essentially he said uh, 
anyone who tries to value this is, is kind of making it up as they go along. It can't be valued, you know. So essentially, you know, you can say it's worth $100,000 or you can say it's worth $100. There's no real proof for, for either statement. So you're you're completely buying on hope at this stage. But uh, again, against that, of course, people have been saying the same thing for the last five years. I mean, that was literally a quote from... 2014, when uh, I think it was Barclay said, you're, you're buying this purely on hope, you know, but uh, the price keeps going up. So, uh, you know, irrational or not. It's, um, so could you just explain just for the uninitiated, what is Bitcoin? Um, well, it's a, a cryptocurrency. It's um, the, the technology now is kind of beyond my pay grade, but uh, essentially uh, it was developed by um, a computer programmer, I think a Japanese computer programmer back in 2008, 2009. And um, they wanted to kind of bypass banks. It's a completely like an anonymous currency, essentially, and kind of untraceable. So it's kind of famous for buying illegal things over the internet, say on the dark web where, you know, illegal drugs and all kinds of other things can be traded. Uh, people can can buy and sell these things using bitcoins, which are untraceable. Um, now, it is becoming somewhat more mainstream in that some um, you can use Bitcoin to buy certain things in normal life, but um, as yet very little because the major banks uh, haven't really got involved in it. But many people believe that uh, essentially this is the future and that uh, that cryptocurrencies are going to be utterly normal in the coming years and um, that it'll be instead of using normal currencies, we'll all be using cryptocurrencies, etc. So that's something like the thinking behind it. Uh, as I say, the the exact technology behind it now is uh, famously complicated. Well, I suppose it. I mean, that in itself is is perhaps a warning sign if people are investing in something they don't necessarily understand. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you see, again, these same points could have been made four years ago. I mean, I, I saw. I saw a piece recently, uh, Jamie Dimon, the uh, CEO of JP Morgan, he he denounced Bitcoin as, as a big fraud, basically. Yeah, he said it was worse worse than the, the Dutch tulip uh, bulb mania. In, yeah, in well, his head. strictly speaking, if you're going to be a quantitative bore about it, it's not quite worse than it yet, <laughs> but uh, it's certainly Still up time. there. But I mean, he's attracted an awful lot of criticism for saying that from the Bitcoin believers. There was a piece in The Guardian recently where financial writer Dominic Crisby he said, basically, uh, who's the stupid one that skeptics like Diamond may be jealous that other people are getting rich when they're not? You know, now, that's a pretty, it's pretty silly reasoning, really, because you could say the same thing back in the late 1990s when people were buying dot-com stocks. Do you know what I mean? And the more sober-minded people were saying, this is crazy and this doesn't make any sense. But um, that silly trade was a, a very profitable trade for a long time. So people could say, well, you're just jealous because I'm getting rich and you're not. Similarly, you could have said the same thing maybe in 2006 when people were warning about taking out buy-to-let mortgages in Ireland. Do you know what I mean? They could say, well, you know, we're getting rich and you're not. And it's a bit like in ways if you if you drink drive home drunk from the pub and you get away with it doesn't necessarily mean your decision was right or that it's safe to drink drive. So essentially, just because the price is, uh, is rising, it doesn't mean you're right, you know. But uh, certainly at the moment, yeah, the whole problem now is that it's, um, you've got all kinds of people recommending it. Like you have a, a former football manager, Harry Redknapp. He, he tweeted there a few months ago um, uh, that mobile cryptocurrencies was the next big thing and, you know, it's no time to get involved. 
and you've got uh, Floyd Mayweather, the boxer, uh, Paris Hilton, the socialite. All these people have been promoting cryptocurrencies. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that these aren't uh, ideal people to be getting your financial advice from. But um, as I say, <laughs> that's a polite way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, as and as these uh, celebrity endorsements are piling in on the other side, of course, the, the warnings are getting louder. It's, it does seem like you mentioned um, Jamie Dimon there, but uh, uh, Warren Buffett, I think it was, who called it a mirage. And there's, there's been there's been a, a you know a, a slew of highly respected uh, people with the track record of success in investment Absolutely. saying this is really madness. Yeah, Warren Buffett has said it, and Robert Schiller, the Nobel economist, has warned against it. Howard Marks, who kind of warned against uh, the dot-com bubble in the late 1990s and, and the housing bubble in 2007, you know, he's warned against it. And in fairness, I mean, um, people tend to give out about uh, Wall Street and bankers and their role in inflating bubbles, but uh, pretty much everyone this time, you know, is warning against it. it it's uh, very much a, a fringe field. But, um, and can, can it be regulated? Is there anything that can be done about this? Well, presumably you would expect uh, something to be done at some stage. I mean, the South Koreans um, just last night, I think, have um, have said now that profits on Bitcoin are going to be taxed and they're trying to ban foreigners and miners from trading it. Like in South Korea, apparently it's there's a complete mania and uh, it really is. Everyone is talking about etc. So... Um, at the moment, I suppose the vast majority of people, even though it's getting an awful lot of attention, you know, it's not easy to buy Bitcoin and it's not used in normal life. And there's probably a sense that if the bubble does burst and if there's a big crash, that it's not going to wreak any great damage on, on the wider economy, etc. But you would assume that um, that regulators will certainly start looking into the whole question and think, well, can we do something about this if it becomes more, if it continues to, to advance in the fashion that it has, etc.? Do you know? Okay, well, on that volatile note, uh, we'll leave it there. But thank you very much for the moment, Pruncia Somahani. Now, wrapping things up for us this week, we have Irish Times aviation expert Barry O'Halloran, who's been reporting this week on the threat of a pilot strike at Ryanair. Barry, up to 117 members of the Irish Airline Pilots Association have voted for industrial action against Ryanair. Why? Well, pilots have been campaigning now for several months for a new form of representation within the airline. Ryanair has a form of collective bargaining, uh, which runs through uh, a series of employee representative councils who negotiate with the airline on behalf of staff at each of its individual 80 plus bases across Europe. Pilots are saying, no, we want something else. They want a thing called a European employee representative council which will negotiate on a national and a regional base. Much more like, it, it, it kind of looks and sounds much more like a traditional trade union. This movement also has the backing of each of the pilots' unions in each of the jurisdictions where uh, Ryanair is operating. So, for instance, uh, the, the Irish Airline Pilots Association is backing this in, in Ireland. In Germany, it's the, the German Cockpit Association, which is called known as VC for short, uh, in Italy, it's ANPAC. In Britain, it's BALPA, so on and so forth. So there is a strike uh, pencilled in here for December 20th in Ireland. But as you mentioned there, that's not the only industrial action that Ryanair is potentially facing. No, it it, it looks like there, is, that there could be a series of strikes in various European countries. Um, the, the German Union yesterday said... we 
we, we can go on strike at any time. Uh, apparently, their industrial relations laws allow them to, to, to have these kind of strikes with very little, little or no warning, I understand. Um, the, the, the Italians and the Portuguese have also said that they're going to, um, that they're going to engage in some form of stoppage. Now, the, the, the Italians are saying that they're going to go out for four hours next Friday, but they have, done, they have said this before and they have cancelled uh, very, very close to the deadline on the back of legal concerns and, and other issues. So it remains to be seen whether that's going to happen. But, I mean, clearly the soundings from the Irish side are that this stoppage on Wednesday the 20th is going to go ahead. And if you're flying out of Dublin or the, any of the Irish airports on the 20th with Ryanair, you know, can you assume now that the, your, your flight might be cancelled? What disruption can you expect? The, the fact is we don't know. Um, the airline itself in a statement yesterday conceded that it may cause some disruption. There's an acknowledgement that the airline has a lot of resources, may be able to fly in pilots, uh, specifically captains who are the group that, that, that are going on strike and the group without whom you cannot fly. Um, but that the airline could fly in replacement captains, if you like, for the, for the day uh, from the other jurisdictions in which it's operating. You've got to remember, airlines also have to have reserve crews and people on standby for all sorts of eventualities. So it may be that the, the airline's own systems will kick in and, if not prevent the disruption, possibly minimise it. We, we don't know. The airline itself isn't commenting and you, you can kind of see why because they don't want to show their hand this early in the, in the game either. Where I think there might also be a risk is uh, possible secondary picketing. Um, this would be or some kind of secondary action. This would be other trade union groups who, whose workers or whose members service Ryanair or service Ryanair flights in some way um, engaging in some kind of action in support of the pilots. Now, I don't know if that's possible, to be quite honest with you. Um, but if th- there may be some sort of risk of that happening as well. It, it Really, I think we'll have to wait until the day and wait and see what happens. So, I mean, it does feel like Ryanair is spinning a lot of different HR plates around Europe at the moment. You know, where does this end? Does this end with, with, with the management making some kind of concession? It's hard to know. I think for now that the company has decided it's not going to countenance this and it's 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 going to face this down. Um, like any business, I suppose you, you're going to weigh the the sort of the immediate risks against the longer term risks. If Ryanair feels that they can battle this out, that they can dig in, they you know no no other organisation there there is no organisation better at doing that sort of thing at at digging in and, and fighting out a war of attrition against whatever group. So I think that's what they'll do. But if they do see a long a, a longer term damage to to the product, then possibly they they may they may meet somebody some they may meet some of these demands halfway. I mean, industrial relations rows inevitably tend to end up in some kind of compromise where everybody gets to claim victory. Uh, it, it it may land that way. It may not. And of course, this this follows Ryanair's cancellation of about twenty thousand flights um, over the course of a series of months um, as a result of roster difficulties and, and issues connected with some of these industrial disputes. Is this going to make more people think twice about booking with Ryanair? I mean, I would assume it it it, it could have that effect, and and I think the union is hoping it will have that effect. But you've got to remember, Wednesday the twentieth. Coming up to Christmas, a lot of people will have booked those flights by now, you know. Mm. So if you've already booked your Ryanair flight, you may take your, you you know, you might decide, well, I'll take my chance. Um, But over the longer term, you know, obviously people book flights weeks and months in advance. So it's over the longer term. That's where it may possibly 
kick in. But you know, they they had they they cancelled flights that affected around seven hundred thousand people uh, in the autumn, and they managed to get over that really really quickly. Like their their traffic in November grew quite strongly again. So, you know. Reiner has a tendency to come up against these things and get past them, you know. Well, yeah, and it's obviously the sheer size of Ryanair, you know, puts, you know, the, those 20,000 flights sounds like a huge number, but it was still flying a great number of passengers every day. Yeah, it, it was an actual fraction. It, it was a tiny fraction of their actual passengers. And it's a business with scale and, and, and with, quite frankly, the economic muscle to... to to, to deal with and absorb a lot of challenges. And I think that's probably what the company is betting on, yeah. So possibly more turbulence ahead. Thanks very much, Barry O'Halloran. That's it for this week on Inside Business. My thanks to Chris Johns, Cliff Taylor, Prunchia Somahani and Barry O'Halloran. This podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. You can subscribe on iTunes or find it at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. A reminder, you can also get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. I'm Laura Slattery. Until next time, goodbye.